foreign aid, what's broken about it? And how can one small, intrepid startup think tank change the way that hundreds of billions of dollars are spent around the world for good? Walter Kerr is the executive director and co-founder of Unlock Aid. He's a former FSO who hung out uh, in the in the good old days in Chengdu for a little bit, as well as Amanda Arch, chief operating officer of Unlock Aid, a Microsoft veteran and founder of Kasha, a fintech platform uh, in Africa, are both on the podcast today to talk about their new think tank. So what is foreign aid and how much does America spend on it? Uh, you know, so foreign aid, first of all, Jordan, thanks for having us. Uh, foreign aid uh, refers to the tens of billions of dollars that the global community spends every year to address challenges like global health security, food insecurity, uh, education, uh, and other global priorities. The United States, uh, through the U.S. Agency for International Development, spends uh, more than any other uh, global development agency around the world, more than $30 billion a year. And the idea is that by investing in and helping to build healthy societies around the world, that uh, by investing in programs like food, education, health, et cetera, that collectively could build a more prosperous, healthy world, uh, less likely to go to conflict, more likely to save lives, uh, and ultimately uh, you know, benefit the planet. And let's talk dollar amounts for a second. Uh, so the United States spends more than $30 billion every year on uh, foreign aid. Uh, this year, it will uh, spend the vast majority of that through uh, the U.S. Agency for International Development, although there are a couple of other big U.S. global development agencies and programs. Uh, the Millennium Challenge Corporation is one. The Development Finance Corporation is another. Uh, and then there are kind of signature foreign aid programs like PEPFAR, uh, which are singularly focused on issues like HIV. Seems great. What's wrong with it? Uh, well, I think the first challenge is that not enough of this foreign aid money actually reaches anything foreign. Um, and so, you know, depending on how you define what it is to be a local entity or a foreign entity, uh, you know, anything between 7 to 11% of U.S. foreign aid actually reaches uh, a local organization or a foreign organization. In fact, the vast majority of it flows through just a handful of large, often U.S.-based government contractors. And then even there... There's a big consolidation pro problem where you know, around 60% of funding, actually more than that, goes through just 25 government contractors. 75% of uh, funding goes to just 80. Uh, and the impact this ends up having, though, is that organizations that are closest to solving the problems can't access the funding they need to ultimately invest in breakthrough technologies related to addressing climate change uh, or global hunger. Uh, and um, really what we're thinking about is how do we create new pathways uh, that enable these really next generation organizations with some of the most compelling solutions for the climate crisis, for, for addressing food insecurity, global health security, to be able to access that funding to scale up solutions that we know uh, will have an impact and save lives? So um, so I want to come to come back to this idea of like big is bad. You know, we had Tyler Cowen on the podcast a few weeks ago who wrote Big Business, a love letter to an American antihero. Uh, Microsoft a few weeks ago, sort of like the 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 biggest bad in the land is now about to roll out this like incredible AI innovation with Copilot. That's going to mean I'm never going to have to make a PowerPoint presentation again. Um, why is why you know what fails with scale when it comes to development around the world? Well, I think I, I think it's not. I, I would say that it isn't scale that maybe is a challenge. I think what we're saying is is that because there's such a concentration of the organizations who have been doing this work for a long period of time, and so much of the funding is going to a handful of players, that we're really about diversification of new players coming into the space. And so I, I we think that it is important to be able to have elements of scale in terms of in terms of the best evidence backed proven solutions be able to maximize their impact. That is a good thing in terms of the results that we want to see. I think that right now, because where we are in terms of on pace to achieve the sustainable development goals, we know that we need new solutions and the opportunity for them to participate. Right now, they're being blocked out of being able to access the funding. And that's what we're focused on is the diversification of partners to be able to to scale and to achieve more impact. Yeah, I was going to say that if you I mean, if you were to look out across the countries where, you know, U.S. foreign aid historically has supported uh, in Asia, Africa, Latin America, you know, over the last 60 years or so, there's been this explosion of new organizations that have grown up that are really solving problems related to health, food, education, 
Um, these organizations don't think of themselves as global development or international development organizations. They're just a healthcare company or they're a logistics provider uh, or they're an agricultural provider. Uh, you know, I think what we are trying to do is to help bridge the gap between where foreign aid has traditionally flown, uh, which is to a handful of uh, largely legacy contractors that have built their businesses around the business of winning U.S. government grants and contracts and helping to connect resources to these other organizations that are really already having an impact on the ground. Now we just need to scale up that impact uh, so that we can get greater bang for our buck and ultimately save more lives. The analogy that strikes me as like most relevant to this as opposed to like tech monopolies is defense contractors. And it's just, um, it's a difficult thing to um, get to the level where you are legible to uh, any sort of like government granting or contracting organization. And there are and the, the, the sort of incentives that lead to concentration in the defense world, as well as I assume in the in the USAID world is this idea of like, we just need to get money, like sort of budgetary constraints of like getting money as, as out as fast as possible um, and, you know, making mistakes and taking errors and being risk avoidant. Um, you know, there aren't sort of like like. Like, I don't think anyone at USAID is is working on a sort of like VC style compensation package where if, you know, they, they fund something that's like 100x better than the last thing, then they're going to be, you know, rewarded for taking on that sort of por portfolio risk. That's such a great point. I mean, so much of this is just the cultural change that's needed in terms of how our public institutions are thinking about this risk reward trade off to doing more innovative approaches to their their goals and missions. And so from our perspective, you know, we're not ever advocating for, you know, completely turning the ship and doing everything differently. I think we're looking, as Walter said, to, you know, how can we um, ensure that there are reasonable pathways for innovators to start working with the agency so we can start to get the data and evidence to continue to to invest further into these types of solutions. And so that we feel like um, we're, we're trying new things, it, we're doing it at a reasonable scale to be able to further accelerate it. Jordan, when I think about um, kind of what we're trying to do with Unlock Aid. You know, it's, in many ways, this is a campaign to modernize the way the government works, starting with U.S. foreign aid, because a lot of the challenges that we're talking about around consolidation, uh, not getting enough results for the investments we make, uh, these are analogies that are uh, true across the federal government. Other federal agencies are, str are struggling to keep up with the pace of the 21st century. And so uh, so much of the thesis here is that there's already been loads of research, loads of resources poured into figuring out what investments are most likely to have the highest impacts in terms of lives saved or dollars saved. Um, now, how do we create the uh, incentives? How do we address the procurement barriers? Uh, how do we address a lot of the sludge that keeps government investing flow, government investments from flowing to those interventions and solutions that we know are going to have the biggest impact? Yeah, I mean, healthcare, education, other places where lots of money gets spent, probably in not the most efficient way. Um, but I guess you know, is 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 a slightly different sort of balance of power than you know the the development primes that you guys are trying to um, uh, force to work in in, in different ways. Um, how can we fix this? What are some of your ideas of how to change these processes? Uh, Jordan, I think that a lot of the ideas out there are to look across the federal government and other public institutions, look at what's worked and then say, well, why don't we try to adapt this in a U.S. foreign aid context as well? So one specific idea is uh, the idea of scaling proven solutions. Um, so we have invested a lot of money you know, collectively in terms of identifying what are the interventions, the programs, innovation, solutions, whatever word you want to use that we know is going to per dollar spent uh, yield the most social impact in terms of lives saved, in terms of dollars saved. We should be looking at this list of solutions and making sure that they are first in line to receive funding. Right now, the way that the federal government uh, and USAID traditionally tends to think about these kinds of typically newer approaches to solving programs is to fund them through smaller innovation budgets. Uh, we're talking about tens of millions of dollars. Uh, instead, what we should be doing is looking at what are these programs that are yielding the highest return on investment and funding them out of the general account where we can bring them to scale uh, so that we're not talking about using these interventions in just a geography here or a community there, but really on a national scale 
uh, to save the most lives possible. Uh, so having some kind of codified proven solutions program where we are prioritizing those most cost-effective interventions, I think is one idea. Um, a second is just re-looking at a lot of the uh, ways that we're getting money out the door so that we uh, flip the model on its head, um, including by paying for outcomes instead of for programs. Right now, the way that the federal government tends to pay for a lot of global development programs is they say, you know, we've got this big problem that we want to solve in health. Um, we're going to spend $100 million uh, and everybody send us your proposals about how it is that you think you would address this challenge. When we do that, that optimizes for who can put together the best proposal uh, and ultimately who has built, built the most expertise in terms of winning a government grant or contract. If instead we flipped this and we said the U.S. government wants to pay X amount of dollars uh, per a particular outcome, and we will pay retroactively once we see that outcome or result has been delivered, this would flip the model such that we're not optimizing for proposals, we're optimizing for results. It engenders more innovation uh, because the thing that we're paying for, the way that we're getting accountability is whether we actually uh, got the end result. Um, and so just by looking at things like innovative procurement models and shifting how we're getting money out the door can incentivize better performance, uh, bring down costs, bring cut red tape, and ultimately, uh, save more lives. Two thoughts, Walter. One, it took an immense amount of work for the U.S. government to even start experimenting with pay, per, pay for performance um, when in the uh, in the healthcare context. So, um, I mean, I guess you know, again, it, it's the political economy question. Like, are, are there enough people lobbying against this to who you know know that they can't compete with the happy local player who is probably way more efficient um, than uh, the sort of a giant firm which is paying first world salaries um i don't know we'll see i hope that ends up playing out um my other sort of like random take was um my hope that sort of the edge that you get in grant writing um is something that ai is very quickly going to dissipate if everyone uh, uh you know without native level english without a ton of context um can ask gpt4 uh hey like please here is my company, search all the data, like here's five bullet points I want you to hit. Please turn this into something um, that a US aid grant administrator would be impressed by. Um, you know, it, it, my, my hope is that some of this like institutional overhead and bloat, um, not just in, in foreign aid, but like across um, government contracting may end up being um, uh, the sort of the sort of like financial and knowledge barrier, sort of institutional barriers to this may uh, may end up being sort of ameliorated somewhat by AI. Though then again, you know, I'm sure there is an aspect of this which is also very much relationship driven, um, which uh, prettier, well, more, more like better formatted prompts aren't necessarily going to solve. For sure. And just to say that, you know, I think that we think that there's so much elements of complexity benefiting the incumbents. And so in terms of just all how ChatGPT and these things can help reduce barriers uh, to ensure that that those particular elements of just familiarity with the process, just how much time and investment is needed for small innovators to be able to, to meaningfully um, bid for some of these awards. I think, you know, also looking at transparency, just ensuring of end to end, you know, how are we spending this money? What are the results that are happening? I think really the transparency in some of our policy proposals there ensures that we have a better aperture of end-to-end, -end, you know, what is happening, how can we improve, and that better fosters the culture of innovation that we want to see at our public institution, where we can have honest conversations about what's working, what's not, who are the best people to be able to, to solve these solutions. By transparency, it's like showing, it's like making clear to the tax, taxpayer, like the top, the, the cost structures, as well as, um, you know, making sure that everything has like after action report of sorts of how much, uh, you know, how effective the program was. I mean, there must be some of that already now, no? So, Jordan, I think one of the things that we think is important is uh, transparency, because even this question about how much money is getting to uh, foreign local entities is, is actually hard to know because the uh, data that USAID uses to publish this information is not publicly available. Uh, they use internal systems um, that the public doesn't have access to. So it's difficult to replicate uh, their own statements about how much money is reaching local organizations. But even if we were going to look at something like how much money um, flows from one of the larger international contractors to local entities, um, because we don't have 
um, information about what indirect rates are and management costs, et cetera. It's very hard to actually know how much of this money gets stuck in the DC beltway and how much money is actually going to improve outcomes around the world. Um, to the administrator uh, administration's credit, um, you know, Administrator Samantha Power, former USUN ambassador, I think she does get it that we need to get more of these resources to organizations on the front lines solving problems. It's one of the reasons why she's made a pledge to get at least 25% of USAID funding directly to local organizations, one of the signature things she hopes to achieve by the end of this administration. Um, but I think she's also coming up against really serious, big bureaucratic challenges to making that happen. They've got a lot of money they need to spend uh, with a limited amount of time with relatively few people on staff. So that favors the mega award model uh, with $100 million, $200 million awards, of which there are only a handful of contractors in the world set up to absorb this funding. Uh, so we think a mix of a lot of the internal uh, de-sludging efforts that the administration is actually taking, uh, undertaking on its own uh, to reduce the transaction costs of getting this money out the door, plus a lot of the innovative procurement vehicles that we've been advocating and increasing use of uh, that optimize for results instead of for proposal writing, uh, plus some other pathways that create dedicated funding to bring to scale those interventions that we know are likely to yield the best results. You know, taken together, we think that all of these things can ultimately transform the way that we administer U.S. foreign aid, make it far more effective, and actually in the process, uh, establish the U.S. as the partner of first resort for countries around the, around the world that want to access this kind of funding, technology, innovation to accelerate social and economic development progress. What's so upsetting about that story you just told, Walter, is like these are not, um, you know, the government's the only buyer here. Like they can make the rules. And these are not classified programs where anything in the procurement documents are going to be like revealing state secrets. I, I can't find any reason why the sort of like entirety of what these businesses do uh, shouldn't be in the public domain. Or am I missing something? I don't know. What's the argument you guys run into? Well, I mean, the, the main argument we run into is that the contractors will say, well, this is competitive information. You know, what is our indirect rate versus what is your indirect rate, which is another way of saying what is our management fee for managing all this money uh, is considered trade sensitive. And if we made that public, then it would uh, hurt our ability to win a contract relative to this other government contractor. Um, there are there are a handful of instances where I do think it actually probably is important to keep some of the information uh, more close hold. You know, if we are funding an NGO in Syria, for example, that might be targeted by an authoritarian regime, it makes sense why we would want to you know, keep some of that information away from um, or shield it in some to some extent from public view. But there's a lot that we can do to uh, uh, put a much greater sunlight in terms of how foreign aid uh, dollars are spent, uh, in part because we think that the more sunlight there is on foreign aid, uh, the more pressure there will be to actually get resources out the door to organizations best positions to have best position to have an impact. It's so funny because like in so many leading in so many places where there's this there's this like big question of like, what should the government do to impact um, corporate behavior? Like the government isn't the 800 pound gorilla that it used to be, for instance, with semiconductors, where it could really dictate the development of um uh, of the industry because it ended up buying 97% of the chips. Like these companies, they're not going to go to anywhere else really. Um, you know, it's like, I mean, I guess you can go to like Japan or the UK or the Netherlands and like ask them to fund your development stuff. But, um, these companies are still going to be bidding for, um, whatever USAID ends up putting out there as, uh, for, for their tenders. And the, and, and the, the irony is like the, there's an extraordinarily amount of leverage that the that the government has if it can sort of figure out its internal processes in order to um uh you know not have to be reliant on these large firms to spend the money that's um uh, that that's appropriated to them the other thing about all of this is that the world in 2023 looks very different than it did in the 1960s when we uh started doing us foreign aid in the first place Right now, just as a very simple example, um, there's a $17 billion global health supply chain contract that's up for public tender. It's the largest foreign aid 
contract or set of contracts the agency has ever put up. Uh, there is a uh, firm in Africa called M Pharma. It's the largest pharmacy on the continent, operates across nine countries. It sees people every day, uh, gives them anti-malarials, HIV tests, you name it. Uh, to date, they have yet to receive a single dollar from uh, this large global health supply chain contract. This is a continuation of a $10.5 billion award before that, a $2.5 billion award before that. When we're talking about how do you have the most impact, working with an organization like that, the largest pharmacy chain in Africa, helping them scale up their impact, paying them uh, to expand access to anti-malarials, HIV tests, uh, is the most cost-effective, fastest, highest impact way that we can be distributing foreign aid. Uh, if we had more transparency around uh, how much money was flowing to which organizations to do what, uh, I think it would create enormous pressure on uh, policymakers to ensure that uh, more funding is actually flowing to those organizations that are best positioned to uh, have the most impact. And just to add on to that, I feel like it's not only the transparency of how the money is flowing. We also just this is where the power of narrative shift is so critical because we, you know, we do need to ensure that our legislators and, you know, just the broader public has an understanding of what solutions and what po what's possible on the ground today. So I think there's a, an element of our work that is is shining a light on these types of solutions, being able to, to share their impact in action. I think we'd love to, you know, be able to do a CODAL or a staff deal at some point where we're really taking legislators on the journey to see what's happening on the ground today. Because I think that is that's really where those um, eye-opening moments are of like this whole new world is possible that we're not um, in on. Because if you just look at right now, maybe what some of the missions are funding locally on the ground versus what's happening across the street and some of the innovation ecosystems being built in places like Accra and Nairobi and Bogota, et cetera. I mean, this is where we need to be able to close that gap of how we're currently funding things and what's possible in these innovation ecosystems. Um, that's that's really interesting that the sort of like, like there's like some like, bigotry of low expectations going on when it comes to these local players that the rest of the world hasn't the, the developed world hasn't necessarily caught up with. And, and in some cases, I mean, there's technology that's been developed in Africa, Latin America, Asia, that's a decade ahead of what we're doing here in the United States. Uh, mobile money, Kenya was way ahead of us uh, in terms of Venmo uh, by deploying technology like M-Pesa um, and, you know, there, there's examples like that across the board uh, where uh, companies, nonprofits are developing highly innovative solutions to solving uh, challenges that are unique to their local conditions uh, that are outpacing even uh, what we've done in the United States or in Europe. Uh, and the solution often is to scale up. Uh, those kinds of investments rather than um, hoping that we can fly in folks from overseas to dream up solutions for them. There's a group, yeah. Jordan, of, called um, NEMPI, which uh, is, is worth looking into. They um, had such an effective uh, cognitive beho behavioral therapy approach to reducing violence in Monrovia in Liberia uh, by getting uh, at-risk youth who are in jeopardy of joining gangs uh, to get involved with, um, you know, the, the particular way that they've done their programming, and it's had a significant impact in terms of reducing crime in Monrovia. It's been so successful that now Chicago is replicating this. You know, th there's like a nice version of this, Walter, where you get a sort of like competitive development dynamic where like China and the U.S. are competing to like make the rest of the world richer, um, which is sort of like the most hopeful story I could possibly tell about the trajectory of U.S.-China relations. Uh, I'm curious, you know, to what extent you see, like, is AIIB and other sort of Chinese development efforts like at all interested in this sort of game? I mean, the, I guess the the sort of stereotype is like you're 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 flying out sort of like people who make um, is like you just you just end up having like like folks from Anhui building railroads in Kenya as opposed to as opposed to having a more sort of integrated um, uh, approach like the ones you guys just described. You know, I, I think that we're, you know, the United States is never going to go dollar for dollar with uh, China uh, in terms of what it's spending on Belt and Road. Um, having said that, though, if we were to actually think about what is the United States comparative advantage um, 
insofar as it relates to positioning the United States as the partner of first resort for countries around the world, we really still do have uh, an edge when it comes to innovation, uh, technology, uh, and helping countries access and scale up the use of innovation and technology to solve hard problems. To date, I don't think that the way that we've thought about U.S. foreign aid has really leaned into uh, innovation as a real strength of ours that we can really think about scaling up to the extent that we've had investments in innovation. Um, it's typically tend to be, tended to be very small ball, uh, you know, $10 million here, $10 million there, not touching the $30 billion uh, that the Agency for International Development is, is spending uh, each year. And so I think, you know, so many of the um, policy prescriptions that we're talking about with Congress, with USAID, is really about this idea of how do we look at the technologies, the innovations and solutions that we know through uh, uh, trials, through uh, demonstration of commercial viability, uh, through outside evaluations, have an outsized impact, are saving the most lives, are cost effective, and then really bring them to scale. Um, if we are able to partner with countries and help them access uh, and scale up uh, these kinds of solutions, I do think that there is a um, a, a way that we can uh, help the United States become really a partner of first resort for so many countries around the world. But that will require moving away from a model that often means flying in international contractors from the DC Beltway uh, to then come in, choose their own partners, figure out how they want to solve the problem. We really need to be moving much more to a partnership model uh, where we're helping countries access the kinds of technologies and solutions they need and they want to accelerate their own development and economic progress. And just to add there, Walter, I think, you know, not only do we need to be helping countries pick the best solutions and innovations that make the most sense, you know, for where they're at on their development journey. I also think we need to look at, you know, they are actively building out their own innovation ecosystems, thinking about how to build jobs for the future of citizens of their countries. And I think that the United States can really be helping them think of what are these leapfrog technologies? What does this mean for their workforce developments and where they want to go in terms of their country's journeys to being part of the, you know, the jobs and industries of the future as well that are not so heavily reliant, maybe on manufacturing um, and industrial revolution jobs. So tell me a little more about Unlock Aid. How are, you know, what is the like ground strategy for, um, uh, sort of realizing these changes we've talked about over the past half hour. So Unlock Gate has been around for a little over a year. You know, we started with nine organizations who really felt like we were in a unique moment to try to push some reforms possible. You know, I think about why I was excited to join Unlock Gate in 2021. I, I felt like, you know, we, we there's been so many challenges that we've all been aware of in this sector um, for a long time. And so when I met Walter, you know, he had helped to put together this research project, really looking at a lot of the barriers it actually started with this article that he uh, published in Foreign Affairs on some of the on how procurement reform is really blocking a lot of the changes that we need to see in this space. And I like to say that was kind of this lighthouse moment for me where I was like, yes, that is exactly a root cause issue that we need to advance so much of the innovations that we want to see forward. And so when I met Walter, saw that he had had this uh, been able to bring together nine organizations that were committed to putting together this initial level policy. I think in our wildest dream, we were like, okay, you know, maybe we can take this to DC. Maybe we can find some people that would be open to, to some legislators who would be open to talking about this. But in our, in our wildest dream, it would be, could we maybe get some legislation introduced? And so over the course of last year, you know, we had our initial DC advocacy week where we were blown away by the, the level of engagement and support we were hearing from bipartisan legislators in terms of our initial policy asks. And during that week last year, you know, um, a senator who works in uh, foreign affairs said to us, I love what you guys are thinking, but we need to think bigger. This is a really unique window we, we have right now to do some big things in terms of modernizing foreign assistance. And we think that you guys have got some great ideas, but you know, how can we really take this and be more transformative? And so this led us to putting together our, an event we did in Mexico City last summer called the SDGs Moonshot Accelerator where we went out to our community of innovators and our coalition and said, okay, if you were given $500 million uh, to be able to uh, maximize your impact, you know, what would you do with that? You know, what are, what would be some of the policy support that you would need? You know, what are the resources that you would need to be successful? And this, we feel like was the first time that there was a flip asking the frontline innovators what they would do with a significant amount of funding to achieve impact. 
Um, so through that process, you know, we were we uh, went to Mexico City. We had 70 plus organizations representing 35 countries come together. We were working with the Federation of American Scientists Day One Project on these proposals. And we, we, we were able to put together some really exciting moonshot ideas. And um, through this process, has helped us to further strengthen our policy platform to put forward what we feel like is a really bold, ambitious um, agenda in terms of reimagining global development. Um, this is what we've now worked to strengthen in terms of our legislative asks. And we were uh, thrilled to see, you know, elements of these ideas that were included in um, the bipartisan Fostering Innovation and Global Development in December of last year that was introduced by Representatives Castro and Representatives Kim. Um, and we're looking forward to now on this new Congress, being able to see more of this get over the line. Jordan, if I were to add to that, I think that like what's been exciting about so many of the um, policy prescriptions, ideas that we put forward is that, you know, Unlock Aid is, is a coalition first. It's a coalition of organizations who are on the front lines of solving these problems. And so so much of the ideas that we put forward have really been driven from questions with them to say, what are the barriers that are keeping you from being able to access public funding to scale your impact? And then from that, we've been able to translate it in many ways and for policymakers to understand, okay, if we wanted to work with organization X or organization Y, we need to address procurement barrier A and create pathway to uh, funding uh, B. Um, you know, this was a, this initially started as a research project. Um, there were a, a handful of us that were involved with talking to 70 plus organizations to identify what were those bigger, biggest barriers. Um, and it's really evolved since then uh, to now what feels like a movement. Um, and we're really encouraged. The administration uh, uh, recently put out its new acquisitions and assistance strategy that's talked about diversifying the agency's partner base, getting more funding to local organizations, scaling up the use of paper performance as the most important metrics that it's going to be using to evaluate success uh, and progress. Uh, we're seeing the introduction of legislation. Uh, so it really does feel like now is a very special opportunity where we have a narrow window to actually drive through a lot of these reforms. It's one thing to have the policies put out there. Now it's going to come down to implementation. So, Walter, compare the sort of ideas that you've been pushing, particularly with what you what you guys got up to at Mexico City with um, uh, the sort of givewell.org approach. There's a lot of there are a lot of organizations out there that have already put in tens of thousands of hours sometimes in the case of an organization like GiveWell to identify what are the specific charities, NGOs, interventions that we know per dollar spent are going to yield the highest impact in terms of lives saved uh, uh, per dollar. Uh, and, you know, so much of uh, the idea around proven solutions, which we talked about at the beginning of the show, is to say, how do we look at these kinds of investments and make sure that those that have the highest ROI are first in line to receive funding uh, uh, and create real pathways to bring to scale the most effective programs in global development? Beyond GiveWell and malaria and bed nets, like, there's also this searching function that kind of needs to happen in order to be able to find the next, um, you know, super awesome, effective approach. Um, what is what is or isn't happening or needs to happen in this space to um, make sure that we're sort of like not stuck in a, you know, in a in a lower equilibrium than we necessarily could be when it comes to effectiveness of the interventions? I mean, I think we feel that there is, you know, extensive of, you know, research and development, kind of early phase support for um, very compelling solutions in global development. And so we see a lot of, you know, $250,000 pilots, you know, in country X, you know, testing on solution Y. I think what we feel when we think of effectiveness is really the biggest gap that we have defining this next phase of solutions is what we, when we see after organizations have kind of proven out some proof points, and now they're looking for this next level of scale, you know, we're really going to Maybe in terms of a, an organization that's looking to do delivery of certain inputs, you know, when they're in a pilot, they're in a certain cost structure and, a, you know, limiting their impact that they really need to get to this next level of scale to showcase, you know, the, the full fidelity of the solution. And so I think from our perspective, you know, what's needed is how are we identifying solutions that are kind of at this breakout stage where they've seen the early results, they have the traction, now they need to scale up to the next level where they maybe go from serving 100,000 people to 10 million people. 
And that's where we feel like in the global development pipeline, there's the biggest gap today in terms of the funding and resources necessary to scale up to that next level. So we feel great that there are uh, um, parts of USAID even within the development innovation ventures that is has an expertise of validating and proving out the the evidence and the hypothesis for early stage solutions. As we said earlier, some of our core policy um, goals is, is what would it look like to take those evidence-backed proven solutions and being able to ensure that they have access to the scale of funding to, to go from one country to five countries, you know, 10,000 people to 5 million people. That's where we feel the biggest opportunity right now um, for those next most effective solutions to be found. There's a program at a lot of other federal agencies. I think 11 federal agencies have the Small Business Innovation Research Program, uh, which has basically a phased funding model where you can come in with a solution and receive $150,000 grant. If it proves effective, they'll increase the grant size to, let's say, $250,000 or a million dollars. It kind of varies depending on the agency. Um, if that proves effective, though, then you get to flip and access the general account uh, to bring your solution to scale. Uh, this kind of program does not really exist in global development. Uh, it exists in some ways, uh, but it does not exist around commercializable, sustainable solutions. So much of what we uh, see in global development, especially in certain sectors like health, power, food, is that there actually are very uh, commercializable solutions that have long-term sustainable, um, highly innovative ways of solving uh, big challenges. But there's not been a uh, nexus for bringing those kinds of solutions to scale. So another policy idea that we put forward also is what would it look like if we had an SBIR-like program for global development? We're actually building long-term, sustainable, uh, commercializable technologies and solutions for uh, big global development challenges with eligibility for organizations based in low and middle-income countries to apply. Sorry. So by commercializable, it's like the, the government's uncomfortable funding businesses that can self-sustain? Is that the is that the concern right now? I don't think the, the government at large is uncomfortable uh, funding businesses. I think that from a development context, it's being able to say, you know, what are the most effective interventions versus and, and being able to scale up those interventions where we already see a lot of this evidence versus when is there a moment where one specific organization has an expertise that we need to scale up in terms of their technical capacity, their operation support to be able to enter and serve additional markets and reach more people to ultimately maximize their impact. And I think it just being having both pathways to be able to scale up different parts of the development toolkits. Yeah, it's, it's funny. It's it's kind of like scary and sad. You guys are talking about Cibber as a model after like all the shows I've done about how it's like terrible in the DOD context. And, you know, all of these companies get like stuck at phase two and, you know, never end up reading, reaching, um, you know, graduating to the big pots. But hopefully that the, the um, uh, dynamic is, uh, you know, ends up being a little different once um, uh, um, once once that uh, comes to, to your neck of the woods. But, you know, I think we have the benefit of seeing the challenge that a lot of uh, SBIR models have had with other federal government. In some ways, like that's been the pilot. And now it's, yeah. you know, we get to say, okay, if we got to apply this in a global development context, what's needed? And, you know, there have there are some effective SBIR programs out there um, that have uh, effectively made the link between phase two and phase three funding. And that's uh, a, a component of what we, we, we would need to see if we were going to have a similar kind of program uh, function in a global development context. And Jordan, I think that that's, uh, I love that you said that because I think that one of the things that we hope in terms of the work we're doing at USAID is also not to have this feel like so siloed across agencies. And we we just want innovative models across the government to be, be actually closer working together and we're faster sharing some of the best practices and learnings about how it is that we need to scale up innovative solutions. And so I think our ultimate hope is, is that um, through whatever breakthroughs we're able to have with this, that we are replicating and sharing faster insights across all agencies on what's required for innovation to be successful. We, we spent basically this whole episode talking about the U.S. context, um, but, you know, we got we got Germany with a casual 25 billion, the U.K. 20 billion, e, the EU, God knows how terrible their procurement process is at 17 billion, Japan, France, you know, there's lots of other governments that are spending real money um, to try to, you know, create positive um, development impacts around the world. So how is this conversation playing out in other countries? And, you know, what's the hope, um, you know, 
can unlock unlock more than just you know Washington. Well, so I think the first thing to know is that other governments, I think, address similar kinds of challenges. They they are accountable to their taxpayers, and so they have a fiduciary responsibility to make sure that uh, taxpayer dollars are well spent. Uh, other governments do do a better job in general of getting more resources directly to. Uh, organizations closer to solving the problems. This isn't to say everybody's doing a great job um, at this, but uh, other entities like the Norwegians, like the Dutch, um, have done a pretty good job at getting resources directly to organizations uh, on the front lines of solving problems. Um, there's a lot of uh, multilateral institutions that are also doing a pretty good job as well, like the Global Fund, like Gavi, in terms of getting more resources directly to organizations on the front lines of solving problems. Uh, so there are models that we can replicate uh, and still have high impact um, and maintain a level of um, fiduciary responsibility to the U.S. taxpayer. Having said all of that, though, so many of the international foreign aid donors look to the United States. Uh, and so if we are able to uh, make some progress here in a big way, uh, this will have ripple effects across the G7 uh, and with other large international aid donors. So uh, even moving from uh, 7 to 11% up to 25% is going to have a cascading effect across the international development ecosystem uh, because um, this challenge of moving more resources to more effective organizations uh, is one that all sorts of donors are grappling with and are looking for models they can replicate uh, as well. One thing we hear often from organizations who are for profit and have some element of potentially venture funding is, is that because today it's so hard for innovators to be able to access the scale of funding directly with USAID or as a subcontractor, you know, their investors are saying we we need to grow. You know, we need to continue to achieve our business goals. If there's um, no meaningful path and, you know, reasonable timelines, you know, this doesn't make sense in terms of how an organization should be spending its time, even if it's the most impact aligned organization out there. And so I think we feel that in terms of other ripple effects that we could see, if we can show uh, organizations that there is a faster, more reliable pathway to be able to scale their impact uh, and grow their organization with public institutions like USAID, we feel like this could unlock a lot of other investment in Silicon Valley, with other private sector investors to want to crowd in more investment into the global development space. There's billions of dollars out there right now that, you know, if even 1% of that was able to meaningfully shift to innovative solutions, this could unlock a, a, a lot more investment. Yeah. You know, coming back to the the sort of DOD analogy as well, like defense tech was not cool for a really long time. Um, but, you know, just in the past few years, thanks to the war in Ukraine and like increased U.S.-China tensions, there's been a lot more uh, and like, you know, one or two successes with Palantir and Andrel, there's been a lot more excitement for uh, folks who aren't necessarily just like, you know, values players uh, trying to get into the space to think uh, in that, you know, that yes, they can feel good about themselves, but they can also make a profit that they can go back and tell their um, their 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 LPs was was sort of worth their time and money. And um, if 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 the development world can get to that space, that would I think would be, uh, you know, a really exciting uh uh, place that, you know, th that would be a really awesome kind of validator. Um, uh, the sort of procurement has really gotten to a, gotten to a point that, um, you know, new entrants are excited to, um, uh, uh, to, to bring the latest and greatest. The reason why we called it the the Moonshot Accelerator, this event that we did in Mexico City, is I think we really do see, you know, this broader work we need to do in development to achieve the sustainable development goal, ensure we're on track to hit core climate targets by 2030. You know, we do need, this is an all hands on deck situation. We need the best innovators there. And so I think in terms of really being able to get the best talent, the best resources, the best solution, the most excited about contributing their time and efforts into building solutions for this space, that's what we, we hope that we're able to, to help unlock and be able to um, catalyze more investment and uh, resources to these critical challenges. Well, Walter and Amanda, I hope to have you guys back on in three years after you've closed your first $500 million round um, uh, to invest in uh, in seed development startups around the world. Um, but in the meantime, I just want to make a case for all the philanthropists, uh, all, all the, you know, effective philanthropists around the world to give you guys money right now. So, you know, currently your budget is just a million dollars a year. 
And, um, you know, speaking of like, like potential ROI, um, the work that Unlock Aid is doing to, um, you know, potentially like dramatically reshape the, uh, the way that tens of billions, if not potentially hundreds of billions of dollars of development aid is spent around the world to, to drive it to more, um, you know, cost effective, impactful uh, solutions is a really exciting way that I think, you know, if you do the sort of expected value back out of the, you know, chances you guys have for success is compelling. Think the sort of logic um, that ends up with folks giving money to bed nets is totally understandable. It, it makes a lot of sense that you'd want to have a high degree of confidence um, that your money is doing good in the world. But on the other hand, um, you know, if you're looking at like expected value, um, you know, placing a placing a bet on unlock aid and sort of backing out the expect, expected value of turning, you know, $40 billion a year of uh, U.S. development dollars into something that's like radically more effective than what the, you know, development primes are able to deliver seems like a pretty straightforward case to me. So anyways, that's my sort of un, like unsponsored pitch for um, uh, supporting unlock aid. Well, thank you, Jordan. We think there are reasons to believe this is achievable. Um, you know, first, in the most recent omnibus bill, Congress increased 33% funding for the most effective unit inside of USAID that delivers a uh, social return on investment of 17 to 1 uh, by 33%. Uh, we just saw the agency publish its acquisitions and assistance plan, which will govern how the agency spends $100 billion over the next five years. And they chose four indicators uh, that will govern how they're going to spend money as the main things they want to use to track progress. Two of them related to diversifying who the agency works with. Two of them related to uh, paying for performance. We just saw the introduction of legislation that will direct USAID to prioritize its investments towards its most cost-effective, highest-impact interventions. So there's a lot of things that are happening right now that give us the sense that we have reasons to believe that change is possible, which is why the next 18 months are going to be so crucial to drive this campaign over the finish line to make sure that we can pass landmark legislation that fundamentally reforms the way that we do U.S. foreign aid positions the United States as the partner of first resort for countries around the world and ultimately gets more resources to organizations best positioned to save lives, have an impact. So so what's so what does um you know what does quadrupling your um unlock aids budget unlock? So I think the first thing is that um you know so often uh the challenge is a literacy one. You know, when people are talking about foreign aid reform and procurement challenges, these can feel like very insider, esoteric topics. But when we actually have the moment to talk to a lawmaker, help them understand how very simple fixes can unlock billions of dollars for a greater impact, we, we very quickly bring them into the conversation and they're excited about um, the possibility for change. So the first thing is more uh, resources would enable us to have more of those conversations. Right now, we're limited by in terms of how many conversations that the, the, the handful of us and uh, that are on the full time staff of Unlock Aid can do. Um, so, first, more resources enable us to have uh, significantly increased the literacy and education that we're able to do with lawmakers. The second, I think, the other thing is uh, we need to do a better job of telling the stories of what we're missing out on. You look out across Africa, Asia, Latin America. There are organizations that are transforming uh, those countries' economies uh, for good. Uh, and right now we have uh, too antiquated, anachronistic idea of uh, what the capabilities of African organizations, Latin American organizations, Asian organizations are. We need to do a better job of telling the stories of change makers who are using uh, next generation technologies to solve hard problems and showing what's possible. Uh, and so more resources would also do a, uh, help us do a better job of um, connecting those stories with impact to help people see that better uh, funding flows could really accelerate our ability to achieve the sustainable development goals, meet climate targets, uh, and ultimately save more lives. I would say along the lines of any campaign, and that's really the, you know our core uh, orientation this year is treating this like everyday matters to kind of the the goal line at the end of this administration. You know, did did we make significant changes in terms of new legislation? new policies enacted by USAID, you know, ultimately implementation on the ground of some new solutions that innovators are leading. 
uh, early funding matters. And so being able to have funding in the door now that allows us to hire the resources, building out the team, you know, the additional work we need from a digital perspective to be able to really also break out this conversation beyond Washington, D.C. You know, so much of the conversation around foreign, around global development is happening in an echo chamber in Washington, D.C. I think we like to think that, you know, Americans at large are not really thinking about this, but they are thinking about this, right? They're thinking about it in terms of how the global supply chain shutdown impacted their day-to-day lives. And and we need to do a better job of connecting, you know, what's going on day-to-day across America with foreign aid spending. And so being able to do that narrative shift work in terms of how we're reaching this into new audiences is a critical part of uh, the funding, where the funding will go to be able to build more bridges to connecting this conversation with audiences. I think the other sort of interesting like extension is, you know, you alluded to it earlier, Walter, about how these procurement problems aren't sort of foreign aid specific and how, um, you know, spending spending money more thoughtfully with smaller dollar amounts in a more sort of like, you know, where you push the decision making down um, or what have you. This is like a like a every federal agency, I'm sure, has a, a variant of it and you know, the extent you guys can like have your like alliance be across. Well, actually, I don't know if that'll get you closer to success, but that's a, that's a. One of the things that I find to be really interesting about a conversation with lawmakers is that it's really a roll of the dice sometimes about how the conversation is going to go. The meeting might start. And when we're talking about foreign aid spending, uh, you might have somebody who's very concerned about um, cost effectiveness and making sure that we're getting, you know, high yield for every dollar spent. Uh, you might have somebody that cares deeply about how much money is actually reaching local communities, how many lives saved are coming at this from the perspective of just, are we saving lives? You might have somebody that's coming at this from the perspective of, is the United States showing up as a responsible global leader, uh, especially in the context of China, which takes on a whole other uh, conversation with so many in Congress. The, the thing that's interesting about all three of these conversations, no matter which perspective you're coming at, uh, is that they all kind of boil down to the same sets of issues around procurement challenges, procurement reform, creating new pathways for organizations to be able to access funding, uh, making sure that we're prioritizing investments for those in, for those interventions and solutions that we know will work. Uh, so there's actually, um, we're finding broad-based bipartisan support for a reform package to improve the way that we uh, administer foreign aid every year because the better that we spend this money abroad uh, ultimately uh, improves also uh, our interests here at home. Uh, And so uh, we are finding that there's growing appetite for this issue. Uh, And to your question earlier about what would more resources do for us, uh, I think the more that we're able to get this message out to constituencies uh, and lawmakers to help them understand why this issue matters so much would, would be a major unlock for us. And Jordan, I was, I was thinking, I was reflecting back at the at the beginning of the uh, the discussion when you mentioned the term think tank in regards to unlock gate. I think this is another area where there's almost an innovation in how we operate. And that another thing I think we feel that resonates really well with uh, legislators is that not only are we coming up with the new ideas, but we, but there's a circular aspect of being able to reference those from the frontline innovators, the doers, and then we also have the the advocacy. So I think. In many ways, we're an innovation in ourselves in terms of how we're trying to drive this reform and that we're, we're the ideas, we're also the doers, and then we're also doing the advocacy and kind of having that in one place is, is I think, kind of a key part of our uh, momentum today with legislators. Uh, maybe, Walter, uh, one question for you. So, you know, this is like uh, the sort of possibility space that you are now operating with as compared to your time as an FSO doing China stuff is like radically different. I'm curious kind of how you how you have like made the mental shift from like cog in the machine to like trying to change the machine. Yeah, well, I think that at the root of all of this, whether it's working on the inside as a foreign service officer or, or you know, being on the outside, working with Amanda and others to kind of agitate for reform, I think what underpins all of this is a deep belief in the potential of government to deliver. You know, I think for what it's worth at the State Department, you actually get a really high ROI for every dollar uh, that goes into that agency, just in terms of um, the programs that we're able to administer, the kinds of uh, conversations that we're able to have with uh, other countries to inspire trust. So 
Um, you know, so much of what the motivation behind Unlock Aid is, is about how do we get every federal government agency to deliver? Uh, and we are starting with U.S. foreign aid agencies. Uh, there's a role for both to play. I mean, when you think about um, both, there's a role for both insiders and outsiders to play. When you think about what it's what's required for policy change, you do need people on the outside who are fighting for new authorities, for who are fighting for new legislation. But you also need people on the inside who are committed to reform, too, because legislation only matters. Bills only matter if you have people who are willing to then be good implementers of those things. So there's a there's a role for reformers to play inside or outside of government. Uh, and I think just the the constraints that you're dealing with are slightly different uh, depending on the perspective you're 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 taking. Sort of like a tangent to close on. Walter, you were you were there in the bad old days of uh, China Substack. I think it was like me, you, and Bill Bishop for a few years. Um, uh, you ran the Chinese Journal Review, uh, where every few weeks or so you would like read some random stuff on CNKI and write about interesting papers that you found Chinese academics were writing. And you know we're at a bit of an end of an era. Um, I think just yesterday CNKI announced that it would no longer be allowing foreigners to access Chinese journal articles. Um, any thoughts or reflections on that experience now that um, you know we're we're really hitting a different um, you know we're, we're we're really in a different moment when it comes to the the ways in which Chinese academics can engage with the rest of the world. Well, first of all, to put the Chinese Journal Review in the same league as China Talk and Sinicism uh, is, is very generous, but uh, but thank you. I think that, well, obviously, you know, China uh, restricting who can even access CNKI anymore is a, is a huge blow, one. I think the other thing, though, is that um, with chat GPT-4, I'm not convinced that there is a... I, I look at how many hours I spent uh, trying to go through Chinese white papers, translating and then summarizing them and thinking about how much more you could potentially do um, uh, just with, with today's technology. Even putting aside China uh, restricting who can access CNKI or not, there was already, I think, a real shift uh, that you could see in terms of even the quality of... Uh, papers, research that you could even find on CNKI. Uh, the reach of the government in terms of how much um, uh, people felt comfortable publishing, what kinds of insights they felt like they could put on CNKI, I think was already um, becoming apparent that you're getting more and more sanitized documents, a few and fewer original ideas um, that really challenged uh, orthodoxy thinking. Um, but you know, obviously, China restricting access to you know its premier kind of uh, JSTOR like database is a is a big blow. Walter and Amanda, thanks so much for being a part of China. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks, Jordan. Really appreciate it. Your face Shabba 请问你是哪位啦拜托你安静一下玩够了吗好了啦好了啦拜托别再乱啦好了啦好了啦龙妹拍谁你在那边会好比傻
拜托你安静一下，玩够了吗？在那边。